0: Welcome to the BICOM podcast. I'm Jacoma Jackerman, BICOM Research Associate, and this is the second part of our discussion with the renowned Israeli legal expert, Professor Yuval Shani. Professor Shani is the Hirsch Lauterpacht Chair in International Law at Hebrew University and a Senior Fellow at the Center for Democratic Values and Institutions and the Center for Security and Democracy at the Israeli Democracy Institute. An issue which is perhaps as divisive as the reforms themselves, the prospect of a formalising of the arrangement for the exemption of ultra-Orthodox men from the military draft. Can you sketch this issue for us from a legal perspective, including how the court has interpreted the question over the years?
1: Okay, well, that's another uh, very long saga, but effectively, uh, Israel has um, a draft law which requires all men from the age of 18 and also all women from the age of 18 to join the military for two or three years. There is within that law certain uh, explicit exemptions, for instance, to religious women or to the Arab minority, etc., There is also a policy by which uh, ministers of defense have uh, refrained from drafting ultra-Orthodox. These decisions not to draft the ultra-Orthodox have been subject to continuous court challenges from the late 1970s onwards, where petitioners have been arguing that not drafting military-aged ultra-Orthodox males uh, is uh, discriminatory uh, when compared to uh, to, to seculars or other religious men who are being drafted. The court has over the years taken the view already in the late 1990s uh, that um, this is something that cannot be addressed through a decision by the Minister of Defense, but rather something that must be legislated uh, by the Knesset. And since then, since the early 2000s, we have seen a series of laws by the Knesset that tried to regulate this situation. And we have seen in most cases uh, the court intervening to strike down that legislation as being unconstitutional. Because uh, it, that legislation, by and large, did not obtain equality in burden sharing between ultra-Orthodox and non-ultra-Orthodox. The court accepted the idea that this is there could be some exemptions, uh, but that there has to be a process which is aimed towards narrowing the gap between the ultra-Orthodox and the non-ultra-Orthodox. Uh, the last court case that we've had in this saga was in 2017, six years ago. In the interim, uh, the court has allowed the government more and more time to come up with new legislation. But now, effectively, the government is out of time. And in as from a legal point of view, the government should now uh, start, uh, since we don't have a valid law in which grants the exemption, the government should start drafting the ultra-orthodox. They are not, of course, planning to do so. Uh, What they're planning to do instead is to pass a new exemption law. And there are two issues here. One, whether they will pass a version of the exemption law that would meet the expectations of the court, namely one that identifies quotas for uh, maximal exemption and also a timeline for reaching that quota or it could be that the that the government will try again to basically give a blanket exemption through legislation and then the court would strike it down again the other uh, question is how can you now push this forward with everything else that is happening in israel and i think this is actually a very a, a more interesting question because uh, as i said before now that the social contract is unraveling you are seeing less and less readiness by uh, those parts of the Israeli population that are working, paying taxes, serving in the military, and in a way making this country tick uh, to accept a situation where they have zero uh, control over decision-making and where their interests are being completely ignored by the government, and this is now seen as the poster child of a government that is prioritizing the needs of its supporters over the uh, common interest of the of the population as a whole. So uh, it now appears that I think the government is is coming to realize that the plans to uh, to pass a new exemption law is going to really take the protest movement to new heights. of uh, of resistance and pushback. So we have seen in recent days reports in the Israeli media that the government is looking for ways to uh, at least water down the exemption law. Thank you. I
0: mean, just a quick follow up. You mentioned that that the court has previously blocked exemption uh, attempts on the grounds that that, that it it breaches equality to to free one section of the population from from the burden of, of service. In the latest uh, government's latest attempts to to consider a bill, it, it seemed as though they were offering offering the prospect of raised salaries and perhaps some other sort of personal advancements as a way of sort of circumventing the possibility of being blocked on that on those equality lines. Did that does that strike you as a viable or a way of preempting court court criticisms?
1: Yeah. So, so over the years, the exemption legislation has tried to do a number of things. One is to tie the exemption also to improving the conditions of those who serve, including the financial compensation. Uh, those who serve do not compulsory service do not receive a salary, but rather they receive a certain certain benefits that are. Uh, tantamount to 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 salary, but still a very low salary, I should say. There have also been attempts to tie the exemption law to uh, greater integration of uh, ultra orthodox in the economy, which is uh, part of the pro- of the anomaly that we currently have. In order to uh, to obtain the exemption, the ultra orthodox have to continue and and study in yeshivas. Uh, and 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 thus they do not go to to they do not train in any profession that could uh, uh, allow them then to integrate in the economy. So in a way, um, th- the common interest is being harmed from both directions. Uh, you don't get them in the military, but you also don't get them into uh, a high-paying uh, uh, job in the in the job market. And as a result, their ability to generate income and to uh, raise the GDP over time is is limited the court has has factored in these considerations the the the, ra- the raising of uh, wages or compensation levels and also the integration of the economy but it's quite clear from the case law that these are mar- i mean these are secondary co- uh, considerations they could justify maybe a somewhat higher quota or maybe a, a longer timeline for uh, reaching that quota but uh according to existing case law it doesn't look as if, as if this would suffice to actually override the the, the 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 basic equality concern is that one group of the population is being required to serve and another uh, group of the population another population group is getting an exemption, which is really the the, the critical issue and of course the fact that this is not just uh, Having to serve in in national service, this is having to uh, risk your life in in for the country. Uh, I think it would be uh, difficult and even at some level um, problematic in and of itself to uh, to put a lot of emphasis on the financial compensation that is being provided to uh, those who are required to serve, because that could, in a way, project the image of a mercenary army that is being uh, paid money to risk its life in defence of the nation, which is very far from the ethos that currently the IDF has.
0: Thank you. I'd like to turn now to a, a subject which has 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 been much connected with the judicial reforms, not least by the, by the Attorney General, and that's the potential for the Prime Minister's conflict of interest. Can you explain this a little bit for us and perhaps talk about the the legislation that was passed in March, what motivated that and the petition that that the court has been has been hearing recently?
1: Right. So one of the September cases also deals with the question of incapacitation, which is... um, we did Israel has had for many years a basic law uh, on government that did uh, deal uh, summarily with the issue of what happens if the if the Prime Minister is no longer able to function. Um, we did have one case uh, with with Prime Minister Sharon who uh, who had a stroke while in office. And there have uh, there are practical issues uh, in that case as to what should be what should be done in in that scenario. I mean, who declares that the prime minister is in, in, incapacitated, and how does the government then proceed with the uh, line of decision making? Um, we did have a few cases actually dealing first with Olmert, but later also with Netanyahu where uh, it was floated by, by some justices, they alluded to the term incapacitation as covering not only mental uh, situations, but also potentially other situations, including conflicts of interest when the, the prime minister, uh, because he is being uh, targeted by a criminal Um, by criminal investigation or criminal charges is using uh, his authority in order to uh, derail the trial, Uh, we have an uh, obiter dicta a side comment by one of the justices concerning Olmert that this could be also potentially an incapacitation case and we did have in recent years a number of press reports that the attorney general the, the, the existing one and the previous one were considering whether Netanyahu's uh, meddling in legal affairs could reach that threshold of active conflict of interest, which would make his term of office uh, incompatible with the with, with basic ideas of, of rule of law, uh, and therefore they were contemplating whether to apply the incapacitation process in that connection. And we do have actually a pending case uh, going in that direction. What happened is once uh, litigation starting started before the court um, a year ago, uh, less than a year ago, in which petitioners were calling on the uh, attorney general to review whether Netanyahu is acting in a conflict of interest by meddling in, in, in judicial matters, uh, in by frankly, by pursuing a, a judicial reform that could change the composition of the courts before which he is uh, or will be adjudicated. In response to that petition, the government, again, through its control of the Knesset, quickly amended the basic law and clarified that the um, incapacitation provision only alludes to health-related uh, incapacitation and that the identity of who is um, authorized to uh, declare incapacitation has been fixed. So it is not the attorney general, but rather either the government or the Knesset uh, committee approved by the plenary, in, in both cases, in all cases, uh, through a very uh, difficult process requiring very high supermajorities. So, so effectively, in order to preempt uh, litigation, the rules of the game were changed. And this is now something that is also pending before the court. So it's not only the question of whether Netanyahu is in conflict of interest, uh, or whether he should be uh, declared uh, incapacitated, but reth- also whether the amendment to the basic law that uh, made it much more difficult to uh, declare him as incapacitated should be struck down. Again, this is a review of a basic law. So we are, uh, like we have discussed before, in an uncharted territory. What I could say about this, um, m- maybe two things. One is that uh, the court has already indicated that it is not inclined to strike down the incapacitation amendment, but it will consider whether it will enter into force only after the next elections, uh, so as to minimize the conflict of interest between uh, this Knesset and the and the, and the legislation that it had passed. Uh, and the other point is that all of this. Uh, debate over conflict of interest is very closely connected to a 2020 decision in which, uh, at that time, the uh, capacity of Netanyahu to form a government was challenged because of his pending trial, where uh, the Supreme Court held unanimously that the in an expanded panel of 11 justices that Netanyahu can serve uh, provided that he adheres to uh, a conflict of interest agreement that ensured that he doesn't use his official authority in, in any way that could uh, undermine uh, the prosecution's case against him or that uh, interferes with the judicial proceedings against him. And the argument by petitioners has been that he has consistently violated this agreement and actually the attorney general has also agreed that he has violated this agreement. By becoming uh, heavily involved in the reform legislation, only that she does not believe that the the, the remedy should be his dis- disqualification, but requiring him to re-adhere to the conflict of interest agreement.
0: And Just to clarify, that 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 agreement was signed not between Netanyahu and the current Attorney General, but the but uh, predecessor. Is that correct? Yeah, so it was
1: prepared by the previous attorney general. Uh, Netanyahu was not so keen on signing it, but eventually his lawyers um, declared in court that he would follow this. And um, for uh, it still binds him, even now that this is a new government. He's still bound by the terms of the old agreement. And the new attorney general has issued... Uh, a statement in which she has uh, provided a uh, uh, detailed explanation to Netanyahu uh, what he can do and what he cannot do under the terms of this agreement, which he apparently hasn't agreed to follow.
0: Thank you. I mean, what is the current current state of of his his own trial, and what chances do you do you give the prospect of a, of a plea bargain being reached?
1: Yes. So this is another illustration of uh, the length of judicial proceedings in Israel, because we've been now three years into the trial. We're not even halfway through. Uh, we're still in the prosecution case. Uh, it's, a, it's a mega trial have, having three uh, separate complex charges against Netanyahu and other multiple defendants. It seems uh, so far, it seems that on, on some um, items, it seems like the prosecution has been able to establish uh, that Netanyahu was acting in conflict of interest and that he may have uh, committed fraud of course we there is also a defense case so we are only uh, so far uh, we've only been exposed to the prosecution case but it seems that uh, perhaps the most damaging charge against Netanyahu that he took bribe uh, this is something that it looks as if the prosecution has not been able to, uh, to substantiate, and we've actually had an exceptional intervention by the judges in the case, uh, who convened the prosecution and also the defense and reflected to the prosecution in that meeting that their uh, bribery case uh, is weak and that they should uh, reconsider whether they want to pursue with the bribery charges. The prosecution has reconsidered and decided that they do want to to, uh, pursue these charges further, uh, maybe hoping that once Netanyahu testifies, uh, they could get him uh, in cross-examination to uh, admit to things uh, that they have not been able to prove uh, on their side. It looks as if the, um, the case for the prosecution is, is now more difficult than originally um, imagined, partly because some of the state witnesses who were closely al- close allies of Netanyahu have given testimony that walked back some of their uh, police statements, but not enough to disqualify them fully. So, so it seems like Netanyahu's um, situation three years into the trial is slightly better than anticipated does that work in favor of a plea bargain i mean it, it, it it's of course a very difficult question because uh for the prosecution maybe the incentive to to strike a plea bargain is now higher I think the court would also be very pleased if a plea bargain is is, is struck, and maybe this is why they convene both parties to, to to reflect to them their their initial assessment of the of the strength and weaknesses of the case. Uh, for Netanyahu, maybe the incentive to uh, strike a plea bargain has been somewhat uh, uh, reduced because it seems as if the most damaging charge has been weakened. So um, at this point in time, it doesn't seem as if there are any uh, active uh, negotiations that we are aware of for a plea bargain.
0: Thank you. I'd like to look at one of the sort of rather less commented on certainly internationally aspects of the of the reforms um, and of the coalition agenda, um, but a significant one nonetheless, and that's, that's the ability of the court to review decisions of Israel's Central Election Committee. Can you give us a sense of of why this ability of the court is important, perhaps some examples of when it's used it in the past, and why the potential change is significant?
1: Yes, so this is one area which is actually very critical uh, to Israeli democracy, because uh, even if one takes a very narrow approach of what is democracy and, 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 and focuses on majority rule, uh, in order for democracies to function, you need to have free and fair elections uh, that respect the right to vote and the right to be elected. And Israel, in this uh, in this area, has um, has a very problematic system in which um, the right to run for election is being vetted by uh, a central election committee that is po- that is fully politicized with the one exception that the, the chair is, is, is a sitting Supreme Court justice, but the other members of the committee are active politicians and as a result, we've had, uh, in again, in recent years, maybe recent decades, we've had uh, a flood of cases in which um, parties were not allowed to run. So uh, Arab parties almost always are being uh, uh, disqualified by the Central Election Committee, including some specific Arab parliament members or candidates for parliament members for statements that are Uh, Allegedly incompatible with the basic law that uh, prohibits um, supporters of terrorism to to run uh, or uh, parties that reject Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. Uh, The basic law also prohibits uh, racist candidates or parties that advocate for racism. And on that, on those grounds, we've had uh, disqualifications by the Central Election Committee of uh, extreme uh, right wing politicians, including the Kahana uh, Party and his um, uh, successors. In recent years, there has been less since the, 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 the political, the composition of the Central Election Committee. Is um, closely aligned with the composition of the Knesset. We have we have had less inclination by the Central Election Committee to uh, strike down extreme right wing parties and greater uh, proclivity to uh, to strike down Arab parties. So, so essentially, what has happened in in practice is that all of these decisions to disqualify or not to disqualify, they are being appealed to the Supreme Court. And effectively, the Supreme Court serves as the uh, as the real uh, central election committee. And the Supreme Court is uh, in a way reinstating uh, candidates that have been unlawfully uh, rejected by the central Election Committee and also rejecting candidates that should have been rejected by the Central Election Committee but have not. So we have seen, for instance, the court uh, reinstituting the Ballad Party, which is an extreme. Um, a relative, a relatively extreme uh, Arab party with a nationalistic agenda. Uh, the court did not accept that it supports that there has been enough evidence put forward that the party as a party uh, supports terrorism or negates Israel as, as a Jewish and democratic state, and, and reinstated them. At the same time, uh, the court did strike down uh, specific uh, right-wing uh, candidates such as. Uh, uh, Gopstein and uh, uh, from the Kahana faction, uh, Baruch Marzel. It did, however, approve of Itamar Ben-Gvir's uh, candidacy, who was also challenged. So the court has played um, quite an important role in upholding the laws on eligibility in ways which would protect the democratic process. Now, one of the proposals that is on the table uh, as part of uh, the flood of bills that we have that are connected to the reform, we have two, more than 200 bills pending, uh, mostly by coalition members uh, that seek to um, dismantle uh, some democratic institutions or to erode human rights and the like. One of the bills is designed to take away from the Supreme Court the power to review decisions by the Central Election Committee, which would mean effectively that the, that the right to vote or the right to uh, be elected would no longer be constitutionally protected by the Supreme Court. And, and at that point, I think it would be very difficult to maintain that Israel has a system of fair and free elections that would uh, justify calling calling it a democracy.
0: Thank you. I'd like to finish with a, a sort of very broad and, and rather perhaps deep question. For you as a, as a constitutionalist, I am fascinated as to whether the crisis provoked by the reforms has led to a demand for what we might call a sort of constitutional moment in Israel, for for moving beyond a quasi-constitutional basic law system to an authentic codifying of Israel's democracy. Have we reached such a moment? What would it take to reach such a moment? Or do the divisions exposed by the crisis indicate that this is impossible in Israel? Mm.
1: So I think it's obvious that uh, Israel is in a very deep hole at this point in time, and it is in a constitutional crisis. And uh, of course, there is this uh, quip about uh, one shouldn't let um, a constitutional a crisis go to waste. That also applies to a constitutional crisis. Um It seems, however, that we do seem to have very uh, different uh, viewpoints as to the general direction of the state. And I think it's fair to say that there is a sizable group within the state that is um, extremely committed to the principle of uh, liberal democracy. But there is also a sizable group within the state that rejects some of the basic tenets of of liberal democracy or at least subjects them to a more um, ethnocratic uh, viewpoint and it would be very difficult uh, to reach uh, a broad agreement. Uh, Israel you know is unique in the sense that it is the only country that has constitution uh, or a constitution-like instrument that does not include the principle of equality And it's not uh, accidental, it's because there has been no uh, ability to even accept, uh, to to come around the idea of equality, so there has been some constructive ambiguity, we have human dignity, Uh, the court construes human dignity as including equality. Uh, but uh, this is, is still not um, fully accepted by, by courts of the population. So, so I, I'm not very optimistic that what we are seeing, the rifts that we are seeing, are actually indicative of a, an ability to come around broad principles. I think there is, however, a greater likelihood That um, the political system will come around some agreed upon rules of the game. This is sometimes referred to now in Israel as the thin constitution, so that there will be some agreement as to how basic laws are being created. Uh, that would um, accept the, the the principle that uh, fundamental changes in the rule of the game in the rules of the game have to be uh, taken by a broad majority. And if 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 this comes out of the of the crisis, uh, this doesn't really resolve any of the substantive issues. But at least at least it gives us a roadmap as to how to work forward there have been some interesting initiatives i would say in that in in connection of w- with connection t- to the long term uh one of which has been to uh reestablish um, a constitutional assembly that is being elected separately from the from the knesset and task that constitutional assembly with the task of formulating a constitution through broad consensus um But this is not a project that is really uh, hiding behind the corner. This is something that is gonna take uh, a a long time. And I'm not sure that this is the best climate now to to actually, uh, when things are so polarized to actually uh, go in that direction, probably the the safer course would be to agree on this broad principle of not changing basic, uh, the, the rules of the game without broad agreement. And then after the next elections, hopefully things would calm down a little bit, then you could go uh, in that direction.
0: Professor Jyvoshani, thank you very much indeed for joining us and for giving our our listeners such a thorough understanding of these pressing and and very weighty issues. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. To our listeners, thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you again soon for another BICOM podcast.